You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you're here. And by the way, didn't the band sound great today? If I can, if I can say. And, uh, and by the way, you guys sounded fantastic as well. It turns out that an extra hour of sleep really helps you guys with the singing. So, um, so anyway, that's, that's good. All right, so where do we start? Uh, let me start here. How many of you have been on Splash Mountain? Can I ask you that? Okay, majority of you. And the second question, and that is how many of you enjoyed Splash Mountain? All right, these are the people to pray for, by the way. Uh, these are the people that find uh, torture enjoyable. Uh, well, my mom has this picture in her house on prominent display of my wife and I riding Splash Mountain. And there's two pieces of information you need to know that are very important. One is my wife loves roller coasters. That feeling of impending death, like it's just enjoyable, probably why she married me. And uh, the second thing is I hate roller coasters. Um, I, I do not like the sensation of feeling that I'm falling. And if you enjoy that, then I don't know, you might need some kind of therapy. Um, but anyway, so back to the picture. So we're in the front row because my wife said that it's way more fun in the front row. And I said, and I said, really? I thought it was better in the back, like that it was less. She's like, no, no, it's better in the front. She's like, well, where do you want to sit? And I said, listen, I want to sit in the gift shop. But you know, I'm trying to be a good husband here. So we go on the ride and the picture tells the whole story. And so the picture is my wife, arms up, kind of like this, you know, like really excited. And, and then uh, the picture of me is kind of like this, like holding that bar and, and uh, as if that thing is the only thing keeping me alive. And now here's the thing. If you are a bar holder like me, there's really nothing rational to it, is, is there? And I think we recognize it. There's nothing rational about holding the bar. And next time you go on a roller coaster, here's what I want you to realize. The person who built that bar was the person who came in with the lowest bid. So that's just something for you to think about. And uh, now, but there really is, it's not helping you, but as human beings, we have this instinctual desire to control things. And we, we feel out of control and we will try to fixate on something and when we, even if it's the smallest thing, all of life can seem out of control and we will fixate on this one thing feel, that, that'll make us feel like we're in control. And what happens is most of life is like this. There is what we have the ability to control, there's a space, and then there's reality. And there are some moments in our lives where things are like really, really out of control and the space is really large between what we can control and reality. There's other times when we feel like it's a little bit closer where we're kind of controlling more things than we think, or at least we think to. And, and the problem is everybody has a space between reality and their ability to control. And here comes the problem is what we fill with the space between. And some of us, what we fill is we have the, that what we can control takes us so far. There's the space and we fill that, the rest of that space with worry. Some of us fill it with anxiety. Some of us fill it with kind of questioning God's love for us or what God is doing in our lives. But here's the thing we have to understand is that in that space is where spiritual maturity is born. 
When you recognize that there are things in your life that you are not going to be able to control. And, and the hardest part of this lesson is that it's not a lesson that you learn once. Because it's a lesson that kind of continually happens over the course of your life. But if we want to be spiritually mature, we've got to recognize what we do with the space between control and reality. But here's the thing that I want you to know, is that the happiest people, the people with the most joy, the people that you would consider to be the wisest people in your life, they don't fill the space between control and reality with worry or anxiety. They fill the space with trust. And how do, they, how do you fill that space with trust? Well, it, it, for the life of some people, they will look back on what God has done in their lives. And they're like, if God has been faithful to me in the past, then I know he's going to be faithful to me in the future. And so that past assurance is able to then propel them into the future. For other people, they look on and they say, well, maybe I'm just kind of, I'm on the on-ramp of walking with God and I don't have any history to look back on. And they'll either look at the faith of other people the people around them or they'll start reading the Bible and they'll say, man, if God's been faithful to them and never failed them, then, then I believe God will be faithful to me. And see, the result is when we fill the space between control and reality with trust, that everything that we're looking for, peace, joy, purpose, and a confidence that God is never going to leave us and forsake us, it's all found there. Now here's why I, I tell you all of this because several weeks ago now we started this series in the book of Hebrews which I've been telling you is probably the most theologically dense book in the New Testament. It was written to a group of Jewish Christians going through a difficult time that are asking this question, if God loves me, why is life so hard? And the answer to that question is this very eloquent, very theologically dense letter that serves as an encouragement to do the one thing that you can do when you're going through a difficult season, and that is to fix your eyes on Jesus. And the writer is going to give us another reason as to why we should fix our eyes on Jesus. It's because we can trust him, because he's made a promise to us, and he has sworn that he's going to never leave us or forsake us. And whatever he's promised to do, he's going to fulfill. And listen, when you're going through a tough time, isn't that the thing that you need to know that the person who's promised to you is not going to bail out on you? And that not only is the person who has promised to you not going to bail out on you, but the person whose promise is actually going to walk through and stand with you in the moment. And listen, that is the promise that God is giving to each of us. And he's going to show it in, in three profound ways that we can trust him. So I'd love for you to open with me, if you have your Bible, to uh, Hebrews chapter 6. If you have your notes, you can grab them, or if not, you can look at the screen or the Calvary app. And so we're going to start in verse 9 of chapter 6, and here's what it says. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation. Though we speak in this manner, for God is not unjust to forget your work or labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope to the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. If you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things that I want to talk about, about how we can trust God. But the first thing is this, is that I can trust God because he remembers my service. Now, that there's nothing that we do for him that gets forgotten or that isn't seen. Now, this conversation picks up where we left off last week. Now, if you were here last week and forgot or you weren't here at all, let me just catch you up. That 
there was, uh, last week one of the things we talked about is that there were those who had experienced God's blessing, that is the people of Israel who came out of Egypt, they experienced God's blessing, they experienced God's provision, they experienced God's miracles, and when it got to the moment of stepping into the promise, they still didn't believe. And so what the writer does when he says that, he begins this in saying, hey, we're confident of better things about you. We're, we don't believe that about you, that you're going to, that you've seen all this and don't believe. We believe that you've been walking with God and that you do believe and that you are bringing the things that accompany salvation. That is faith and trust and wisdom. And he says that God isn't going to forget your work or your labor of love. And that, that word work is, is the Greek word ergon, where we get our English word energy. It's the word, that word labor of love is this word, um, kopos, K-O-P-O-S, which refers to labor that's painful or labor that's sacrificial or labor, that, labor that's troublesome. It's not like, hey, can you hand me that bottle of water? Oh, there you go. And th that's not that kind of, it, it, but it's, it's something that cost you something to, to do. It was something that you did, but it cost you something. It was sacrificial. And this brings up a story that I've told about a million times because it was an act of love. And I bring it up because my kids asked me about it yesterday. And uh, so what happened was is that yesterday we were, uh, we were having dinner and they were asking me a question about Wikipedia. And so the kids were, were saying like, Dad, are, are you in Wikipedia? And I said, I, I, I mentioned a couple times in Wikipedia. They're like, no way. So they go on Wikipedia and sure enough, I'm, I'm, I was in two bands. Both of my bands are in there and so it mentions... Um, it mentions that. And so my nephew was there and he's like, oh, well, you were in this band. What kind of guitar did you have? And I said, oh, I, I said I had a 1983 Black Gibson Les Paul Standard. And uh, it was a beautiful guitar. And, uh, and he said, well, what happened to it? I'm like, well, that's interesting that you asked that question. And I said, I actually sold it. Sold it for love. Because I sold my guitar and my amp because I, we needed enough money for our first apartment, first, last in security, and we didn't have any money, so I sold my guitar. I sold my amp. The only guitar I had besides that was this acoustic guitar that I'd had since the ninth grade, which is basically just an abomination um, as far as instruments go. But I sold the guitar because I love my wife, and you can imagine what an incredible gesture it was on my part. And, um, and now, I've told this story many times, not just here. I tell it to anyone who will listen. And, uh, and so, and my wife, the first, I don't know, we've been married almost 24 years, so I would think I've probably told the story, give or take, 2,400 times. And uh, in the first couple hundred times, she's like, you know, it really was a nice thing that you did. It was really, you're really very sweet. And, but once again, after, at about the 20-year mark, she kind of hit her limit of me talking about what a sacrificial man I am. And, uh, and, 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 and so... Anyway, a few months ago, she's like, she had just reached the peak. And she's like, you know what, Bob? You sold a guitar. You got me. Get over it. <laughs> and, and then she said, and she says, you used to play the guitar. Now you play with me. Get your life into perspective. <laughs> and, um, and I did. I did get my life into perspective. And uh, I, I love that woman <laughs> for comments like that. And, uh, but... Now, but this kind of sacrifice, right? The kind of sacrifice that costs something is what the writer of Hebrews says, listen, God isn't going to forget that. In fact, he's not going to forget any of it. 
And that's why what you see in verse 12 is that he encourages us to imitate the faith and the patience of those who inherited the promise. Now, here's the thing you got to understand is that the writer of Hebrews is building up. He's going to make this big crescendo in chapter 12. That's when he's really going to give us the full thesis of what he's talking about. But that comes after he's going to recount all of Israel's history in chapter 11. But he's going to recount it through the eyes of faith trust and promises. And so chapter 11, which is called the Hall of Faith, he's starting to lay the groundwork here so we can see the big crescendo when we hit chapter 11 and he unpacks all of it. But he tells us the same thing that he said in chapter 5. He says that you see the full assurance of hope to the end in verse 12. He says, and you do not become sluggish. Or uh, it's the same word that was used last time if you were with us. We says that they had become dull of hearing or lazy in hearing. That word sluggish is the same, same Greek word. He's just, uh, it's, it's that you don't become lazy in your service. And it's like, well, why would we become lazy or sluggish or dull in our service? Is because, and here's why. Is because we think no one is watching. We think nobody cares. We think that no, what we do doesn't matter. And the promise that we have is that nothing is going to be forgotten. That every sacrifice, every bit of service, every bit of labor that we sacrifice or do anything for the kingdom of God is not just counted, is going to be rewarded. Now, some of that gets rewarded in this life. Some of it gets rewarded in eternity. In fact, we see it like this. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians um, talks about this. He says it this way. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, that word judgment seat, if you're taking notes, just circle that phrase judgment seat. I want you to write this Greek word. It's the word bema, B-E-M-A. Now, that is a word that's borrowed from the, Olympic, the Greek Olympic Games, where a person would run a race and win, they would stand before this, what was called the judgment seat. It was the bema seat. And they would get the competitors who won would be rewarded for winning the race. And what happens is, is that sometimes we make this mistake where we think that at the end of our lives, we're going to stand before God and see if we're we have earned enough or done enough good to go to heaven or something. That's not the way Christianity works. And there's actually two judgments that are mentioned in the Bible. One is for believers. One is for unbelievers. You only get to participate in one. If you are a Christian, you stand before the judgment seat. That's where you get rewarded for everything that's done, uh, that you've done in your life for the kingdom of God. In Revelation 20, there's a judgment that's called the great white throne judgment. And that is at the very end of the age. And that's where God deals with people who hate him. People who do not want to spend eternity with him. They're like, I want to be anywhere but with you. And there's a spot that's been created for them. And we talked about that. And so now... But the, the Bema seat is where the believer stands and receives rewards. And that's what's cool. The thing that Paul says is that it's not just the things that are done, uh, you know, the things that happen in eternity. What we do in eternity is based on the things that we do now. And that some of the, they impact the role and rewards that we have. And, and, and sometimes we don't recognize that because we think, hey man, I don't care. I just, I'm just going to be excited to be there. You know, but then when you get there, you're like, well, maybe we could have cranked this up a little bit, you know? And uh, so this is kind of what it's like. When I was, I've only been to one football game in my life. And it was a 1992 AFC wildcard game between the Dolphins and the San Diego Chargers. It's, only, it's not because I don't like football. I actually really like football. I would just rather watch it in air conditioning 
up close with HD cameras than watch it 500 yards away in a thousand degree heat. So, but that's just me. Well, anyway, I went to the game and I was probably about 18 at the time and uh, maybe 19. And so, but who's counting amongst friends? So anyway, uh, but we walk in and there's people selling ponchos outside and I'm, the sky looks dark and I'm like, you know what, I'm not going to spend six bucks on a poncho. I'm, I'm sure now they're like $80, but back then they were six because this was all before electricity and whatever. And so, but, and I'm like, you know, if it rains, it rains. I'm just going to be happy to be in there. Well, it rained. And it rained in a way that it can only rain in South Florida. Like, it rained so hard, you're like expecting to see a guy and his family building a boat. And, uh, and so, and the entire first half, it rained. And I went to buy a poncho. And they were twice the price. And they were all sold out. And, and here's, here's the point, is that I didn't use my current opportunity to influence my future situation. And that's the thing that Paul is saying, is that we're going to be rewarded in eternity based on things that are done now. And that we have an opportunity to influence what we do in eternity with what we do now. And this is the beauty of service and sacrifice for the kingdom of God, that nothing is forgotten and everything that's worthy of rewards will be rewarded. Well, he goes on in verse 13. It really gets to the meat of this. And he says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by, a, uh, by an oath that by two immutable or unchanging things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation or hope who have fled for, refu for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. If you pause there and give me your attention. Second thing about hope that I want you to note, and that is that I can trust God because he swore an oath. Now, this is a deep cut because the author is bringing up something that I've told you throughout this series, and that is the writer of Hebrews is expecting you to be very well-versed in the Old Testament. And so he gives a whole bunch of references. There's even stuff that we haven't covered, and we'll try to go back and cover some that are just like these little hints uh, throughout the book. But he's expecting you and I to be very well-versed, which is why we try to kind of dish it out as we're teaching it. So he brings up trust and then brings up what is kind of an interesting promise to me because it's a promise that God gave to Abraham, who's the, like the father of faith in Judaism, but it's a promise that took 25 years to be fulfilled. And it's a promise that it's not the way promises work today. You make a promise, right? And now we, we sign it, right? We sign it as a contract. And then if you don't fulfill the contract, we're like, you know what, dude, sue me. You know, and it, it's like, it didn't work that way back then. Back then, you did what was called, when you, you made an agreement, you made a promise, you, you did what was called the covenantal walk. And so rather than explain it, let me show it to you. And you can see the covenantal promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Now let me set the scene for you. In Genesis chapter 13 and 14, and we'll spend some time in chapter 14 next week, but in chapters 13 and 14, Abraham gets all of his 
men. He's got 317 people who work for him. He gets them all together and he fights these five kings in this area to rescue his nephew whose name is Lot. Well, amazingly, he rescues Lot, defeats these five kings, and it's just this incredible underdog story. It's, it's, it's really amazing. But then the adrenaline starts wearing off, and then he starts thinking, like, what happens if these guys all get back together and they want retribution for their losses? What do I do then? And it's, it's at that moment that God appears to Abraham in a vision, and God says, Abraham, don't be afraid. I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Now let me translate that into 2020 language. He says, Abraham, I got you. All right, so that's the translation. And so Abraham then doesn't even really acknowledge that. He just simply says, but Lord, the heir of my house is going to be this guy named Eliezer of Damascus. He's a guy that works for me. Like, I, I don't have any children like, I'm going to step off the scene and everything that I've worked for that I wanted to pass on is just going to go to some guy that worked for me because I don't have a son. And so then, this is what God responds to Abraham. He says this. He says, then the word of the Lord came to him, that is Abraham. He says, uh, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is from your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. And then... He said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, this is the promise that's being mentioned. The, the, or it's a reiteration of the promise. The 25 years before that, God had made this promise to Abraham who was living in a place called Ur of the Chaldees, which is basically on a map now would be like modern day Iraq. And he says, I want you to leave there and I want you to go to this place I'm going to show you, which is this land, the land of Canaan or modern day Israel. And so, and what he tells him is, is that your descendants are going to be innumerable. You're going to be the father of many nations. In fact, his name was Abram and he adds the H to his name and makes it Abraham, which means father of many nations. And so, then Abram says, well, how do I know that's really the case? How do I know that you're going to fulfill this promise? How do I know that you're going to give us this land to my descendants? And this is the covenantal walk. So here's what happens. Next passage. He says, so the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged, them, uh, arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenizzite, uh, the, the, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gershites, and the Jebusites. And their friends, the uptights. And um, now, here's where we see the covenantal walk. It's where these two people, they say, we're going to make an agreement. They would take an animal or two or three, cut them in half. They would separate the two halves of the animal and create this little aisle. And the two people would walk through this, uh, this aisle. And they would, were basically saying, if either of us breaks this covenant, may we become like this animal that's been cut in two. By the way, ancient church architecture 
not so much modern architecture, but older church architecture, always has an aisle in the middle of the auditorium. The reason why that is, you ever wonder like why? These are like the prime seats, right? Right in the middle. The reason why um, traditional churches do that is to mimic this covenant. So that when you're at a wedding, you divide your family in half. And these two people walk down the aisle to, to, to model this covenant. And uh, because if this thing doesn't work out, then our family and our friends, everything is going to be divided. And so it's a picture of that as they're walking down the aisle. So the writer of Hebrews is saying that there are two immutable or unchanging things that we can be encouraged by. And those are that these, these things that cannot be changed, they are immutable. That is that God has made promises and that he has pledged or sworn by an oath that he's going to uphold them. Now listen, let me talk to the dads for a minute. Um, I am a complete maniac about keeping promises that I make to my children. And they can know for certain that if I make a promise, now it doesn't mean that I always promise. So like, hey, we're going to do this. Do you promise? I'm like, we're going to do the best we can. I'm not making a promise. And the reason I say that is because I t when I tell them that I promise I'm going to do it, I want them to know they can take it to the bank. So I was having, and once again, this happened just a couple weeks ago. Uh, my daughter's having a conversation with someone, my, my daughter Livy, and um, they were talking about going to get donuts. And my daughter's like, I want to go get donuts. We haven't gotten donuts in so long. And uh, I'm like, well, it's because your mom buys vegetables. And uh, that did not go over well. And, uh, and she's like, but I want a donut. And I'm like, look, I will take you after church to go get a donut. And so we come home, we have lunch, and I am sitting at the dining room table, and I'm like half asleep. My wife is like, why don't you take, why don't you like, take a nap for a little while. And I'm like, I can't. I got to get a donut. <laughs> and so I go to, and I'm not eating donuts, but I, and I'm like, and we go because I have to fulfill the promise. So my son and I have this conversation a few years ago because I made my son a promise on a Monday about going, this is when the movie, uh, when Star Wars The Force Awakens came out. So this is now like five, six years ago. And, uh, but he's like, dad, you promised to take me to see the Force Awakens this week. And I'm like, dude, I made that promise on Monday. It's Tuesday afternoon. I told you this week we would go. And I said, have I ever broken a promise? And he goes, well, you did one time. And I'm like, well, when, did, when would that happen? Because remember, we we're going to build that Lego set. You promised and we didn't. And I'm like, yeah, I remember that day. Remember you changed your mind and said, ah, I want to watch Ant-Man. And we watched Ant-Man. He's like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. I guess you're doing okay on the promises thing. So, Anyway, but listen, my point is I want my kids to take promises very seriously because I want my kids to trust me when I promise them something. But here's the thing about some promises. Listen, some promises take a little bit longer to fulfill than others. And it's just by nature of the fact of what's being asked. So I made a promise to my son a couple of years ago that I was going to take him uh, the next time I had like a speaking thing in California, I was going to take him so we could go to Cars Land at Disneyland. And um, so he, he mentions that to me. He says, hey, remember we talked about that a couple years ago and uh, it still hasn't happened. And I said, do you believe that it's going to happen? He said, oh yeah. He says, dad, you made a promise. You promised me it was going to happen. And then he said this thing that I've been training him in since he was like two years old. And he says, and you've taught me that a man's word is his bond. And a man without his word, and then he got serious, and he goes, a man without his word is nothing. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, relax, bro. I'm, I'm, I'm the one who taught you that. 
But that's just, listen, but some promises are a little, take a little bit longer than others. And I, I just, I always explain it this way. Um, my wife is the best chef I know. My favorite place to eat is at home. And uh, when I met her, I weighed 180 pounds. Three years ago, I weighed 280 pounds. Now, I'm not saying my wife's cooking made me fat. What I am saying is that my wife's cooking was not encouraging me to be skinny. And so, but you know, that level of understanding, culinary understanding, causes some problems. Now, when I go to a restaurant, if I say I want to go to a restaurant, it's because there's a particular thing I want to eat there. Now, how many, can I ask this? How many of you, you go to a place to eat because you only order, ever order one thing? How many of you... How many of you are like, yeah, I order something different every time I go somewhere? Wow, you guys are all weirdos. That's so, I, I love you, but you're just strange. Um, but so here's what happens is that my wife is one of these people that sits down and she's I'm like, what are you going to get? Like they don't, I, when I go somewhere I've been, they don't even need a menu. There's a restaurant here that I have a lot of my appointments there. I sit down and they just bring me the food. I don't even order anymore because I've ordered the same thing for years. And then the server also comes to church here, which helps. And... Um, but anyway, so we go to a restaurant. Here's what usually happens. It's a protein and a salad, how I stay trim and sexy. And so, you guys laughed a little too hard at that. Just an FYI. All right. So my wife, here's what she does. She scans the menu. Trying to discern, if I take the sauce from that one dish and the protein from this other dish and see if I can get the side item from this third appetizer, and mix it together, it would be like Voltron, all of the six lions coming together to form one robot. And really, not a lot of, uh, not a lot of love for Voltron, huh? All right. Apparently, I'm the, the, the nobody? Really? Okay. Okay. Well, there we go. Okay. There's like three men over the age of 40 that are with me. Very good. Very good. I don't feel old or anything. And uh, so, anyway. <laughs> so, but listen. But then my wife, the, my wife's food comes. And it's like the greatest thing ever. That's why my friend says, Carrie is the only person who still cooks when she goes to a restaurant. But here's the thing. Special orders always take longer. If you order just kind of like off the shelf stuff, it, it shows up quick. And could it be that if you're in the season of waiting, that what you're waiting for is a special order that God is working on, like he did for Abraham? And one of the things that we can trust is because God has sworn to keep the promises that he has made to us and that the season of waiting is never wasted because the season of waiting strengthens me and prepares me for, for the fulfillment of the promise that's going to arrive. And I'm absolutely sure that it is because he has sworn that he's going to uphold it. Well, that's why he says this, and here's how he closes this section. He says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which, in which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 20, we're going to punt to next week because that's all we're going to talk about. But verse 19 is what I want to focus on. And the, the last point in your outline is this, is that I can trust God because he has anchored me to him. I want you to notice that the writer says that this hope, this hope is the promise and the pledge that God says he will keep his promise. And that is an anchor for the soul. 
Why is it an anchor? Because when I find myself in the place where my level to control things, there's a big gap between that and reality. The natural thing that can happen is that I can drift away. What happens is when I anchor myself to the promise that God is going to fulfill what he has spoken to me, it keeps me as an anchor from moving from where it is that I need to be. But I want you to note that he doesn't say it's an anchor to us. He says it's an anchor for the soul. The Greek word there is psyche, which refers to the emotions and the will. And we've talked about that in the past, right? That God is a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and that you are a lesser trinity of body, soul, and spirit. Your body is the physical part of you. Your soul, the psyche, is your emotions and your will. Your spirit is the innermost person, the part of you that connects with God. But the part of you that has a tendency to drift is your soul, your emotions, your will. When King David was on the run from Saul and he had been called to be king by God, the problem is there was already another king and that's a problem. And he was on the run from the current king. He wrote a psalm for people who are struggling. And what he does in the psalm, it's so amazing, it's Psalm 42. But in the psalm, what he does is he writes a psalm for people who are struggling and he starts talking to himself in the psalm, which is, by the way, good advice. But here's what he says, Psalm 42, verse 5. He says, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Now, it's like he's, 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 he's downcast. He's on the run. He's trying to do the right thing. And doing the right thing has got him in this bad spot. And, and he's talking to himself saying, hey, you need to snap out of it. I don't know if you've ever been there. Were you just talking to yourself? You got to put yourself in check. I don't know if yeah, you've, you've ever done that. I, I had this happen. I, I mean, this was like a couple of years ago. I was in like, anyway, it was, it was a tough spot. I was in things going on. And um, I was a bit down about some circumstances and it was affecting everything. It was affecting how I talk, how I listen, what I did, my disposition. And so I, I'm, I'm at a light. I can tell you, I mean, I could take you where it is. Uh, it's like the second light on Miramar Parkway, just over 75, just east of 75. I'm there and I'm sitting at a red light. I've got my windows rolled down. It was the winter, which also is the second week of February. Uh, for those of you that want to know when winter is here, um, it's that like four-day window. Anyway, but I have my windows down, and I had just had it with myself. I don't know if you've ever been there, where you're just like sick of yourself. And um, they, and I just started doing, I did the Psalm 42. I just started talking to myself. And I was just like, Bob, snap out of it. Uh, you are a Christian. God is for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? The Bible says that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but God delivers them from them all. So cut it out because you're making me crazy with all the moping around. And I'm saying, I'm like yelling this to myself. And I get done saying it and I like look to my left. I'm like, I feel a lot better. And then I look to my right and there's a car next to me. And the guy has been listening to this entire conversation. And I was like, oh, I'm listening to some old school rap, West Coast. And I just drove off, never saw that guy again. And uh, just, that was that. So, <laughs> anyway, listen, you know, everybody's like, you know, you gotta listen to your heart. 
Listen to your heart. Sometimes you gotta talk to your heart because your heart is thinking stupid things. <laughs> and that's important, right? So don't listen, talk to it. And so, now, by the way, here's another thing that's important. Hope is something we talk about a lot as Christians, but um, understand the least. Because hope in the biblical sense is very different than hope in the cultural sense. Hope in the cultural sense is like a wish. Man, I hope it doesn't, change, it doesn't rain. I hope the dolphins aren't complete trash this year, right? Um, but that's not the hope that the Bible is talking about. Hope, biblical hope, is confident assurance of something that hasn't happened yet, but absolutely will. And here's the thing about hope, is that not all hope is created equal, because it is the object of our hope that determines whether our hope is justified or not. And you and I, listen, we can anchor our hope in a lot of things. We can anchor our hope in a person. And when that person fails us, our world falls apart. Some of us have done that. And we're like, I'll never anchor myself on a person. I'm going to anchor myself in me. I'm only going to trust myself. I'm only going to trust my abilities. And, and, and we do that. That works okay for a while. Until your gifts fail you or you don't get it right or you let yourself down. And then your world falls apart. But when I anchor myself to the hope that God is going to keep his promise to me, I will never be disappointed if I wait and see how things ultimately play out. Because I have found this, that God never underwhelms us. You ever notice that? God never underwhelms. He has this way of showing up and doing things in a way that we'd never expect and just blows us away. And listen, I've been a Christian now for 27 years and, and, it's, and sometimes it's not just, I've seen God do big things in my life, huge things, right? We're, we're sitting in one of them. And, but I've also watched God do things in my life that I didn't even know he knew about. I didn't even know that he cared about. So earlier this year before like lockdowns and masks and before we knew what social distancing was, um, uh, I told you a story, if maybe some of you weren't here, but about I was going to trade one of my guitars for a dream guitar, right? My dream guitar is a custom Fender Stratocaster, and I have this Gibson uh, ES-335. I know that means nothing, but I have this red Gibson ES-335. If you, um, you ever see like Chuck Berry, he kind of made that guitar famous. Um, if you don't know who Chuck Berry is, if you saw the movie Back to the Future, that's the guitar that Michael, uh, Michael J. Fox, it, uh, Marty McFly, is playing. So if you don't know either of those people, I can't help you. <laughs> and we probably can't be friends. So anyway, now, um, I was very happy to trade the guitar because this, the, the, the Fender Strat was worth twice as much at least than the, than the, three, the red 335. And so, and played way better. So I was going out of town with my family and I had arranged that when I came back, I was teaching on Sunday and then I was going to meet the guy after church and make the trade. So we're driving home from uh, our trip and uh, my wife says, hey, uh, you know, Mia really loves that guitar. Mia's my oldest daughter and she really loves that red guitar. And, uh, you know, she's taking lessons and she's hoping that maybe that's a guitar that you could give her someday. And I'm like, no, no, she doesn't want a good guitar. She wants me to buy her a cheap guitar, that that's what she really wants. And, and as I'm saying it, like, I know what I'm supposed to do, right? My daughter is hoping that I'm, I'll do something great for her. So I get home and I, um, this is a Saturday and I call the guy and I'm like, hey man, it's not going to work out. 
And he's like, why, what happened? I'm like, listen, my daughter wants to get the guitar, so I'm about to do something really loving and incredibly idiotic. And uh, all at once. So I told Mia, look, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna um, trade the guitar with the guy. And, um, and when you're ready, I'm gonna give you the guitar. But you gotta be good to have the guitar. I mean, like, really good, right? Not like just a couple chords. I mean, you gotta be a shredder if you're gonna have, anyway. So I'm like, anyway, so. I decide, I decide that, and I, I think like, you know, uh, my wife and I have this plan. We think that in the next 10, 11 years, we can pay off our house. And so, um, by the way, Dave Ramsey, you should get involved in that action. All right. So, uh, and so I'm like, you know what? When we pay off the house, I'm going to buy the guitar, right? Because the guitar is like the cost of a used car. All right. So just to kind of give you an idea, this isn't like, oh, the guitar's a couple hundred bucks. Like, what? You know, anyway. So it's like the cost of a used Kia. All right. So anyway, so I think like, that's what I'll do. I'll pay off the house and then I'll do that. You know, so sometime before I'm 60, I'll be able to have, have the guitar just long enough to own it. till I hand it to my son or something on my deathbed. And, uh, so, well, anyway, so it was my birthday last week and, uh, as well as October being pastor appreciation month. And, uh, which by the way, doesn't get a lot of play around here. It's interesting. Um, <laughs> I just like making subtle hints. Um, I can say it now that it's over. And um, so, but um, by the way, so here's, this kind of has nothing to do with anything, but I'll tell you this real quick thing is that I have never really big, been a big fan of my birthday. Um, and it's, it's for, you know, my parents are divorced and uh, my so birthdays were always kind of weird. My dad, because he never remembered them. I don't think he ever called me until I was 40 on my birthday. So, which by the way, which is, I appreciate now, but would have appreciated it more when I was nine. Um, but anyway, and then my mom doesn't celebrate birthdays because, you know, I always say, if you don't like children, don't have them, but here we are. So, um, so my wife has told me forever, she's like, you go into like this low grade depression right before your birthday every year. And I'm like, I don't think so. Anyway, this year, I'm like so bummed out. Like two days before. I didn't even realize it was my birthday. I thought my birthday was three or four weeks from now. And uh, apparently my internal clock is synced up with iCal because it knew. And so anyway, so the Calvary staff was just so over the top kind to me on my birthday. Um, and they like balloons and all this stuff. And the, they made me a birthday card that was six feet tall of one of my favorite guitar players. And then they wrote a bunch of stuff on the back. It was so kind. And they left the, all the birthday stuff up for a week. So I come in on Monday. My birthday was on Wednesday. I come in on Monday and I'm like, I need to take all the birthday stuff down. Like it's starting to get embarrassing. Like there's, I can't even get into my office without hitting a pinata that's over the door, uh, over the door frame. It's like mistletoe. So anyway, so I go into the office, I put my bag down and everyone is kind of standing around acting weird, but I don't really pay attention to things. If you, anybody that knows me knows that I kind of live in my own little world and um, things happen. They're like, did you see that? No idea. You know, I mean, anyway, I don't really notice anything. So if I don't notice something, it's not anything personal. Um, I just don't notice things. I don't even notice things about myself. So anyway, so I, um, I walk into my office and I put my bag down and I start taking all the birthday stuff down. 
And so uh, one of the girls in our office says, Pastor Bob, can you hand me that box of tissue? So I turn around and I didn't realize that on the couch in my office, there was a gift for me uh, waiting. It was a, it, it, and it looked, it was a guitar case. And I thought, now I have a Fender Strat, not a very good one, but I have one. And um, it had the, my, the case has a broken latch. And I saw the guitar case and I thought, that is such a thoughtful gift. Someone bought me a guitar case because they heard that, one, that mine has a broken latch. That is so kind. So I walk over and uh, there's this really nice note that is printed because I guess the person doesn't want to know, didn't want to know. So it was, it was, it was printed, you know, like a ransom note. Um, and so, you know, it was, and it said, you know, Pastor Bob, happy birthday. Thanks for all you do. Anyway, very kind. And so I go to pick up the guitar case and the guitar case is not empty. And I'm like, what could possibly be in this guitar case. Once again, I am totally clueless about life. You have to understand that, that things happen to me and my wife has to interpret what's happening because I don't feel anything. I'm always a thinker. Anyway, so um, I thought someone bought me a guitar case. I feel that it's not empty. I open up the guitar case. It's not empty. It is a 1959 reissue Fender uh, Strat from the Fender Custom Shop. And this is a picture of it. It is um, an absolute beauty. And so, yeah. So, I'm in total shock. Now, you got to understand, as I told you, this guitar costs like as much as a used car. And, um, and it was totally anonymous. I still have no idea who, who, who got it for me. But whoever they are, they're probably my favorite people at Calvary. <laughs> and so, no, I'm just kidding. They're definitely my favorite people at Calvary. And so, now, what I, what I found out over the weekend, because I start researching, and it, because it's from the custom shop, there's like nine guys who work at the custom shop. Now, this is a multinational company. There's nine guys who build guitars that are custom. This guy, it was built by this guy named Chris Fleming. Chris Fleming has built some guitars for John Mayer, uh, who is my favorite guitar player of all time. And, uh, and it, it was like, uh, as if anything else could make this, this thing even more special. And uh, so I think there's a picture of me playing the guitar. That, yeah, I'm slightly happy um, about it. And um, so anyway, you can take that. I'm wearing flannel because I'm starting a grunge band. Um, and so now, there's <laughs> like four people got that joke. I know. Some of the jokes are just for me. So now here's, now the, here's why I tell you all of this is um, and what makes this so, uh, why it impacted me so much is that once again, I've seen God do big things in my life. And, you know, so much has changed in 2020. I mean, who thought we'd all be wearing masks and spaced out and all that? I mean, things are very different and we're, and we're making plans to build this big auditorium. And once again, we were closed for four months and we're working on, you know, everybody coming back. And, um, and I've been questioning and we've been praying as a staff and as a board of directors and you know like do we go forward and and I've just there's this thing I live by right and that is that I don't make permanent decisions based on temporary circumstances or temporary feelings and so you know we're we're moving forward we're going to have the engineering plans drawn up by the end of the year to submit to the city and then we're our plan is that probably by, our plan, hope is by Mother's Day, 
to have a building permit in hand where we can do a groundbreaking ceremony and get this thing going. Because um, it's only been a couple of years now because, you know, government. And, uh, and so, but once again, once again, I've seen God do big things in my life. My three kids, I mean, what, what an amazing, we didn't think we could have kids. And, um, and then we started having kids and we had to shut down the shop. I mean, it's like, I felt like, anyway. And, um, but you know, this guitar shows up and it was a reminder to me and every single detail about this guitar. And, and I, I can't imagine that whoever got it knew who built it, right? And, um, and it was this, this thing that God cares about these seemingly little details of things that are in our hearts. And um, because I wanted to be someone who kept his promises, God wanted to be someone who kept his promise to me. And my, my point is in all of this is that we have a hope that can serve as an anchor to us in trying times, in times when our emotions seem to be betraying us. And what we can do if we will tie ourselves, anchor ourselves in the hope that God will keep his promises to us, the big promises, and even keep the seemingly little promises to us, that we will find peace and joy and a confidence when nobody else has confidence and that God is working things out. We can trust in that. And at the end, we are gonna have a story to tell of how God didn't fail us, but instead, here's what he did, what he always does. He over-delivered because he loves you. Let's pray together. And Lord, we wanna thank you for that, that promise that we can anchor ourselves to hope that you're gonna do what you've promised to. And so, Lord, we pray. We pray for the big things. We pray for the little things that we've put out of our minds because we know you're going to fulfill it, that you're going to do the work that you've promised to do. And we hold on to those promises, especially now before they've been fulfilled. And we prayed in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.